Hello, it's Basha here and welcome to the Slow Newscast. We're doing something a bit different again this week. I'm handing over to my colleague Matt Dancona, who's been investigating the UK's vaccine rollout. He tells a pretty remarkable story. Yes, the discovery of the vaccine has been an amazing scientific achievement. But as he'll show you, some of the political decision making behind its rollout has been less impressive. We are still in the tunnel of this pandemic. The light, however, is not merely visible. Thanks to an extraordinary feat of British engineering, if you like, the the tunnel uh, has been shortened. or We're moving faster uh, through it. And uh, that gives uh, me great confidence about the the future in the spring. December the 30th, 2020, and an end-of-year press conference in Downing Street at which Boris Johnson promises that the end of the pandemic is at last in sight. What, again, you might have said, and with good reason, we'd heard it all before. Now extending our plan to lift the remaining national measures which have restricted our lives since March so we can get back to something closer to normal life. Then we can move from not just testing to control the virus and find where it is, but also testing to give people the confidence and the freedom that they can go about their normal lives. I've no doubt that uh, people will be able to have as normal a Christmas as possible and that we'll be able to get things open uh, before Christmas as well. But this press conference was different for very important reasons. I'm Matt Dancona and for the last few months I've been looking into the government's vaccination strategy and the prospects of a promised rollout before the spring of 2021. It's been a bumpy ride. In search of the full story, I've spoken to more than 20 sources, ministers, government advisers, senior figures in the pharmaceutical sector, scientists and health professionals. It's a story that oscillates between genius and misadventure, tensions between pharmaceutical giants and nervous ministers, and the tantalising prospect of escape from the Covid prison, threatened by foot-dragging, logistical failure, and this government's fatal tendency to over-promise and under-deliver. The story brings together one of the great scientific achievements of modern times, the warp-speed development of a successful vaccine, with a litany of mishap, bad planning, and straightforward incompetence in Whitehall and Westminster. It's a tale of British exceptionalism at its best and worst, of scientific brilliance unleashed versus the weaknesses of British manufacturing, supply chains and logistics in a sometimes dangerous brew with post-Brexit jingoism and self-congratulation. It's a back-and-forth, twisty tale with flashbacks, subplots and cliffhangers, but at its heart is a question that couldn't be simpler. As one cabinet minister put it to me, will the bloody thing work and work in time? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So back we go to that all-important December the 30th press conference. What made that day so significant? First, the government was now ready to concede fully that the new, more transmissible variant of the virus was having a disastrous impact. The percentage testing positive with the new variant is increasing at really a very substantial rate indeed. Jonathan Van Tam, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer. As a result, most of the country was moved into Tier 4, the level of restriction just below full lockdown. First, we will introduce new restrictions in the most affected areas, specifically those parts of London, the South East and the East of England, which are currently in Tier 3. These areas will enter a new Tier 4, which will be broadly equivalent to the national restrictions which were in place in England in November. On the upside, the government had been cut two breaks that very day. At a speed that surprised even some senior ministers, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, or MHRA, had given full approval to the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. Well, good morning. It's Wednesday, the 30th of December. Our top story this morning, an hour ago, it was confirmed that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine has been approved for use by the UK medicines regulator. It is the second coronavirus vaccine to be given the green light and is expected to be delivered from next week. Meanwhile, in a quite different form of approval, Boris Johnson's trade deal with the European Union was rubber-stamped by Parliament even more speedily. Did this mean the end of the Brexit headache? Of course not. But it released a lot of political bandwidth, so the Prime Minister could focus his energies on the pandemic and work hand-in-glove with Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, Alok Sharma, the Business Secretary, and Nadim Sahawi, the Minister in Charge of Vaccine Rollout. From December the 30th, the path was clear for the PM's announcement in a public statement five days later of a full national lockdown, combined with robust promises about the delivery of the vaccination. In England, we must therefore go into a national lockdown which is tough enough to contain this variant. There's the stick. By the middle of February, if things go well and with a fair wind in our sails, we expect to have offered the first vaccine dose to everyone in the four top priority groups identified by the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. And there's the carrot. Though testing and tracing will still be needed, and probably for a long time to come, the PM's no longer primarily preoccupied by that particular fiasco. Instead, the success of his vaccine strategy has now become the government's holy grail. If you look at the grail as being half full, the fact that people are already being vaccinated in their thousands every day is already a national triumph. If you see the grail as half empty, on the other hand, the PM has recklessly bet all his political chips on the success of the vaccine plan as the means to get the UK out of its pandemic prison bring down the death toll and surging infection rate, and get the economy running again. Everything, in other words, depends on a single pillar of public health policy. And I do mean everything.
Let's scroll back to January 2020, and however grumpy we may all be feeling right now in lockdown, give a bit of credit where it's due. Matt Hancock, the health secretary, has taken his fair share of criticism during the crisis, but he was quick off the blocks in acknowledging the need for a vaccine a month before the virus even acquired its official name, COVID-19, and two months before the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. Last January, Number Ten believed that if the virus spread in the UK, test and trace would be the solution. But as soon as the genetic sequence of the still unnamed virus was published online, Matt Hancock began reaching out to government advisers, outside scientists, and pharmaceutical companies in search of guidance and data about immunisation. He also believed, as did Alok Sharma, that the vaccine race would stand a better chance of success if it wasn't the subject of a daily running commentary at Number Ten press conferences. Reasonably regular updates would, of course, be necessary. The world would want to know what progress was being made. But in contrast to test and trace, the health secretary wanted a measure of privacy to give the scientists the space they needed. As it happens, an Oxford-based team of researchers was moving even faster than Matt Hancock. Here's Theresa Lamb, associate professor at the university's Jenner Institute, on BBC's Panorama, describing the weekend when she cracked the vaccine code. The information that we needed to design the vaccine arrived in my inbox early Saturday morning. It, the ping woke me up. I still remember. It was the genetic coding sequence for the virus, and what we had that information—that tiny bit of the sequence from the coronavirus—and、um, used that to put into our platform vaccine technology. And then I worked on it over the weekend. So, were you working remotely, or were you in the lab? I'm afraid it wasn't quite as glamorous as that. It was pajama wearing in my bedroom over a computer,、um, trying to get this done with my colleagues. In layman's terms, the Oxford vaccine introduces to the body a virus that causes the common cold in chimpanzees, engineered so that it can't harm us. It's further modified to produce so-called spike proteins, which in turn stimulate the growth of antibodies and T cells that protect people from coronavirus. Extraordinarily, the whole vaccine was ready, at least in coded form, within 48 hours. The detail would take weeks to finesse. But the main sleuthing was already complete by January the thirteenth, twenty twenty. To say that such a huge scientific achievement was the easy part would be quite unfair. But it is true that the hard yards of the process that would get the vaccine into people's arms had only just begun. First, there was the process of clinical trials, conducted again as quickly as the Oxford team could manufacture the vaccine and give the prototype to volunteers. This was done in a double-blind procedure where both doctor and patient had no idea whether they were giving or getting the real thing. I'm a scientist, so of course I want to try and support science,、um, the scientific process, whenever I can. And、uh, since I don't study viruses, I felt a bit useless these days. So <laughs> I felt like this is a very easy way for me to support the cause. That's Dr. Elisa Granato, an Oxford microbiologist, who was the first volunteer in the trials on April the 23rd. In a perfect parable of the challenges facing vaccine teams around the world, it was soon reported on social media that Dr. Granato had died as a result—a downright lie fired off by anti-vaxxers to discredit the research. I'm very much alive, thank you. I'm having a cup of tea. It's Sunday, 26th of April, <laughs> three days after my birthday, three days after I got the vaccine or the control—we don't know—and I'm having a nice Sunday. And I hope、um, everyone else in the world has too. Even as the trials continued, Matt Hancock sought to get the Oxford team to the altar with a pharmaceutical manufacturing partner that would produce to scale and deliver 100 million doses to the UK. 
In this, he was greatly assisted by the university's Regis Professor of Medicine, Sir John Bell, a charismatic can-do character who was, in the description of one government advisor, amphibious in his ability to negotiate the worlds of Whitehall, academia and business. In which context, Oxford's usual collaborator in such cases was the US pharmaceutical giant Merck & Co. A deal for the coronavirus vaccine was almost struck between the university and the corporation. But in a twist that hasn't been reported before, Merck would not make a legally binding undertaking to deliver the 100 million doses the government badly wanted. So, exit Merck, enter AstraZeneca. The company was less established as a vaccine technology corporation than its main competitors in the global corona race, Pfizer and Moderna. But crucially, it was ready to guarantee 100 million doses to the UK up front and to operate on a non-profit basis for the duration of the pandemic. On May the 17th, Alok Sharma announced this formal betrothal of university and corporation. I can also confirm that with government support, Oxford University has finalised a global licensing agreement with AstraZeneca for the commercialisation and manufacturing of the Oxford vaccine. As one senior government source puts it, were we nervous about AstraZeneca? Yes, is the short answer, but the deal was too good to turn down. And by May, we'd seen the full force of the first wave, a thousand deaths a day. In meetings, the necessity for a vaccine, and particularly a British one, was starting to be a fixation for Boris and for Number 10. The pressure was really piling on now. End quote. On July the 20th, the Oxford team was ready to disclose its initial test results. A team of scientists at Oxford University say they've reached a really important milestone in their work to develop a vaccine for coronavirus. They say the vaccine they're developing appears to be safe and triggers an immune response based on early trials involving more than a thousand people. The government has already ordered a hundred million doses of the vaccine. But there was still a bumpy road ahead. On September the 6th, the AstraZeneca trials around the world were suddenly halted after a participant developed a neurological condition. It later emerged, remarkably, that the company had withheld this information from the US regulator, the Food and Drug Administration, in a discussion about the vaccine's path to approval in the American healthcare system. This discussion was just two days after the emergency break had been pulled on the trials. In Whitehall, this looked like the makings of a disaster. We all held our breath, says one ministerial source. This was September and infection rates were already starting to increase again into what became the second wave and then the present shitshow. We needed the Oxford virus to be OK. Badly. As it happens, AstraZeneca's CEO, Pascal Sorio, in conversation with Tortoise's co-founder and editor James Harding, then announced that his company was still on course for rollout in early 2021 – this was at Tortoise's Global Leadership Summit on September the 10th, four days after the trials had been halted. I still think we are on track for having a, a set of data that we would submit before the end of the year. And then, of course, after this, it depends on how fast the regulator will review and give approval. So we could still have a vaccine by the end of this year, maybe early next year. But by the end of this year, it's still feasible. And by the way, there are other, two other vaccines that are actually moving very quickly. One is developed by Pfizer and the other one by Moderna in the US. Those are mRNA vaccines and those are also advancing quite quickly in phase three. So you think that it's, it's feasible for people to, if not expect, at least hope for the distribution of a vaccine in the first half of 2021? I think so, yes. That disclosure made news around the world. The Oxford vaccine was back in business. 
But even then, nothing was straightforward. On November the 23rd, the vaccine was declared to have demonstrated efficacy, a huge moment in the product's development. We're very pleased with this result because it means that we can go forward and apply for regulatory approval and get the vaccine out there and widely used. Hold on, though. It then turned out that the dosages in the trials had been of varying sizes. Many participants had been given only half a dose in one of their two jabs. Confusingly, those who had received in total only one and a half doses were shown to have 90% resistance to the virus, while those who had been given the two full doses scored only 60%. This was a confusion we bloody well didn't need, says one minister. Never mind explaining it to the public, imagine explaining it to Boris. He hates complex messages that aren't straightforwardly optimistic. And this was a difficult one to explain right in the middle of the second wave as hospitals started to really struggle and the tiering system was causing us all sorts of problems, end quote. All the same, production of the vaccine went full speed ahead, awaiting the regulator's approval. Would AstraZeneca achieve its target of 30 million doses for the UK by the end of the year? This is where, so to speak, the rubber stopper of the vaccine vial would hit the production line of reality. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. No crisis, of course, is complete without a czar or a task force, or both, and Boris Johnson has always loved appointing them. On April the 17th, the PM announced the formation of the Vaccine Task Force under Kate Bingham, a successful venture capital manager with deep knowledge of biotech investment. Her mission was to join the dots between the UK's research infrastructure and its manufacturing base, to think strategically about the nation's resilience in this respect. And, as the highest priority, to scale up the manufacturing of the vaccines for use as soon as possible. Kate Bingham, who's now reached the end of her secondment to the new task force, had focused on procurement, as Matt Hancock reported to the Commons on December the 2nd. Thanks to the incredible work of the Vaccines Task Force, the Business Secretary and Kate Bingham, we've already amassed a huge portfolio of different vaccine candidates. 
We've backed seven vaccines and ordered 357 million doses on behalf of the whole UK, one of the biggest portfolios per capita in the world. We've said from the start that a vaccine must be safe and effective before we'd even consider deploying it. The Health Secretary was able to tell MPs that the Pfizer vaccine had been approved by the MHRA, the first coronavirus jab to be approved anywhere in the world. The problem with the Pfizer jab was and is logistical. It must be stored and transported at 70 degrees below zero, a massive challenge for the NHS and every vaccination site across the land. Still, the regulator's approval was a momentous development. Six days later in Coventry, 90-year-old Margaret Keenan became the first person on earth to receive the vaccine outside clinical trials. Just going to be squeezing your arm, OK? OK. Relax your arm for me. Just relax. All done. Right. You're part of a moment of history, the first to receive this vaccine. How does that feel? I don't know what to say. It's just overwhelming as a first, really. Yeah. For Matt Hancock, interviewed on ITV's Good Morning Britain, it was an emotional spectacle. You're quite emotional by that. Well, it's just, uh, it's been, you know, it's been such a tough year for so many people. And there's William Shakespeare putting it so simply for everybody that, you know, we can get on with our lives. And, and you know, there's still a few months to go. I've still got this worry that we can't blow it now, Piers. We've still got to get the vaccine to millions of people. And so we've got to keep sticking by the rules. But it's just, you know, there's so much work gone into this. And I'm really, really, it makes you proud to be British. But the question for Kate Bingham was whether these moments of national melodrama could be turned into a workable, consistent national strategy. Though she's married to Jesse Norman, the Treasury Minister, those who worked with her describe a competent and clever businesswoman who was nonetheless something of a political novice, unprepared for the attacks that quickly came her way. On November the 1st, the Sunday Times reported that Kate Bingham had shared a list of companies the government was considering for vaccine provision during a webinar for women in private equity. She was accused of a conflict of interest and even, spuriously, of insider dealing, allegations she strongly denied. The media storm passed quickly, but Kate Bingham was badly shaken by the episode. As one friend puts it, Kate was literally speechless and tearful about being accused basically of corruption. She had just never thought at any stage of her life that she would be linked to personal immorality. A rough welcome to the political media jungle, no doubt. But leaving this episode aside, what mattered to Kate Bingham, who reported directly to the Prime Minister, was delivery, delivery, delivery. And herein lay the problem. At a joint session of the Commons Health and Social Care and Science and Technology Committees on November the 4th, Greg Clark, chair of the latter committee, asked whether the government would be able to keep its promises. Um, the day after your appointment, uh, the government announced that it had signed a, an agreement between Oxford University and AstraZeneca to make up to 30 million doses available by September uh, for the UK. Um, has that been accomplished? No. So that 30 million doses was assuming a linear um, yield on scale up. So what happens is when you start, when you, when you manufacture these vaccines, you start basically at test tube levels and then you scale up sequentially um, and ultimately get to one or 2,000 litre scales. 
And so the projections that were made in good faith at the time um, to get to 30 million doses in September was assuming that absolutely everything would work and that there were no um, hiccups at all uh, in terms of how you scale up from basically uh, microliter scales through to 1,000 or 2,000 liter scale. Um, and it hasn't gone linearly. Um, and it's not through lack of care and attention or availability of equipment or anything like that. It's just this normally takes a very long time. Sure. So um, the answer is no, but, it's, but it, it is now at the, the um, thousand litre scale and that is working. So I'm, I'm quite sure that we've got the, the, um, the process which is now there, but it isn't, this is, this, you know, we're growing live cells. It's, it's not a straightforward, um, um, activity and I have to say the, the skills in the UK in in advanced manufacturing are world class. So it's it is challenging. Greg Clark pressed his witness on what could be achieved. Four million by the end of the the year. Yeah, and then it again it, it then increases because again it's it's all about having got to that scale you can then run it quickly. But, but the it's the challenges the... of getting to the one thousand liter scale. Trying to vaccinate millions of adults. Uh, in this um, pandemic is, again, a heroic achievement. It's not been done at this scale before. Next, Jeremy Hunt, chair of the Health Select Committee, challenged Kate Bingham to play Mystic Meg on the likely success of the whole strategy. But more than 50% confidence that we will, by the early summer, have a vaccine that we can give to all vulnerable people. I appreciate this as you being optimistic, but I just want to give a sense as to to what you actually believe, um, with the caveat that you're a natural optimist, but you think we could be in a situation by the Easter early summer where all the vulnerable people in the country have got a vaccine that will have some impact on reducing uh, the dangers of coronavirus. That is my view, yes. Thank you. 50%. Why would Kate Bingham, even as she declared herself an optimist, not go further? The answer, according to sources close to her, is that her optimism was tempered by realism born of what she discovered on her travels through Britain's science infrastructure and manufacturing base. First, by November, she fully understood the difference between procurement and delivery. To take one example that may seem basic but is capable of holding up the entire supply chain, there was a particular fragility related to the process of putting the vaccine into the tubular glass files it's then chipped out in. In AstraZeneca's case, this takes place at a plant in Wrexham in Wales owned by a separate company, Wockhart. And guess what? Most of this special-purpose glass, borosilicate and other varieties, is made in China, and there's already a shortage of supply that will get worse before it gets better. Here... Kate Bingham tried to warn the committees of this banal but fundamental vulnerability. But I can say that we have got um, 150 million vials, stoppers and overseals, um, and we have the supply chains in place um, for future vials, so that we've gone back from saying how many future vials in the case of revaccinations, how many future vials do we need, and then do we have enough tubular glass? Which is- Does the phrase for want of a nail spring to mind? Imagine all the scientific brilliance that went into coding the vaccine, subjecting it to trials and manufacturing it by the vat load, only to discover that there aren't always enough glass tubes to put it in. As one senior government adviser says, it's a case of a factory that makes the best jam in the world, but forgets to secure a steady supply of jam jars. 
And to return for a moment to that all-important press conference we started at on December the 30th, here's Jonathan Van Tam making the same point as diplomatically as he can. There is an absolute ambition across the whole of the system that the only thing that is going to slow us down is batches of vaccine becoming available. And many of you know already that it's not just about vaccine manufacture, it's about fill and finish, which is a critically short resource across the globe, always has been, for vaccines. And that's not all. To add to the complexity of the supply chain, the Oxford vaccine needs to spend 20 days in sterilisation. Every single batch, which can vary hugely in the number of files it contains, has to be given approval by the MHRA regulator before it's sent out. As one senior source on the operational side puts it, it took ministers quite a while to clock how delicate and complex the manufacturing process is, how hard it is to maintain quality control and just-in-time supply of the necessary kit. Now they've got the message and it's naturally worrying them. This manifests itself in defensiveness within Public Health England, the English executive agency of the NHS, about the rollout strategy. And on the AstraZeneca side, there's a growing suspicion that they're being set up as the fall guy should the strategy fail. Here's Pascal Sorio on the BBC's Today programme on December the 30th, promising that his company can keep up. We're aligning our delivery schedule with the government. But here's a different emphasis, to say the least, from Matt Hancock, interviewed on the same programme on January the 4th. The rate-limiting step is the amount of supply, and you know, that is a matter for AstraZeneca. In other words, if they make it, we will vaccinate people with it. But there's growing caution, and in some cases outright scepticism on the government side, as to whether AstraZeneca can meet its targets. As one manufacturing source concedes, it only takes a nudge for the whole supply chain to break down. There were meant to be 30 million doses ready to go by the end of 2020, then 4 million. In reality, the total was 530,000 doses. It's not hard to see why nerves are frayed all round, or why senior figures at AstraZeneca worry that if the government's plans falter, their company will get the blame. We'll return to the blame game, but before then, Let's assume for the sake of argument that the supply chain works and the vaccine is available to scale, steadily and without interruption. Who will get it first and how? The question of priority was discussed throughout the year by the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, a seriously grand group of experts chaired by Professor Andrew Pollard of Oxford University, which advises government departments and agencies. The JCVI's manual is called the Green Book and enjoys almost scriptural status in the medical and scientific world. In its discussions, formal and otherwise, between May and December, the committee agonised over whom precisely should be targeted in the crucial first phase. The top four groups were not hard to identify. In order, people in residential care homes and their carers, those over 80 years of age and frontline health and social workers, people over 75 and those over 70, plus those with serious clinical vulnerability. After these top four priority groups, the nation is segmented downwards by age and vulnerability until we reach Category 10, described as rest of the population, with the unsettlingly vague words to be determined added in brackets. Safe to say that if you're under 50 and don't have a serious condition or illness, you have a fair weight ahead of you. For now, the government is committed to reaching the 14 million individuals who fall in the top four categories over the next five weeks. 
But two particular categories continue to vex the committee. One is the ethnic minority population, which has suffered disproportionately during the pandemic, to the extent that black people are almost twice as likely to die from COVID as white people. What COVID-19 has done is to emphasise the existing health inequalities in the country. We need to address those inequalities, whether they're to do with deprivation or to do with people's, um, people's background. After data analysis revealed in the autumn that this was not related to genetic factors, but to socioeconomic causes, jobs, housing and poverty, the committee settled on a fudge that's already attracted criticism. At its most recent meeting on December 30th, the JCVI resolved that health agencies and government at every level should work together to ensure that inequalities are identified and addressed in implementation. It talked about how to get the communications right so that BAME groups come forward to be vaccinated. To translate from Whitehall committee jargon, somebody else please sort out this looming problem. The other category is teachers. Even when closed, schools have to provide a minimum level of support for vulnerable pupils and, crucially, the children of key workers, many of whom, because of the risks their parents run every day, are more likely to be asymptomatic carriers of the virus. And for the NSWT, it's simply not enough for the government to simply hope for the best. We need a clear plan to ensure that schools can reopen safely and confidently that doesn't put pupils, doesn't put the workforce and doesn't put public health at risk. If all this sounds like boring census talk or just another dry demographic inventory, consider what's actually at stake. In the weeks and months ahead, who gets protection from a disease that has been killing a 1,000 people a day? And who has to wait? And wait for how long? In the end, says one source on the committee, we know we are rationing life and death. Remember, too, that there's no robust data on whether any of the vaccines diminish transmission rates. The jab may save your life and spare you from significant symptoms, but will it stop you passing on the virus? This is still one of the great known unknowns. Another is even more straightforward. How quickly can Public Health England and the devolved administrations create an infrastructure of vaccine sites that amounts to more than a jumbled postcode lottery? According to an analysis by the Sunday Times on January the 3rd, 13 million people live in a parliamentary constituency without a GP practice, hospital or community site that is administering vaccines. 8 million face a round trip of more than 10 miles to get to a vaccine provider, a significant challenge to many elderly or medically vulnerable people. Ministers don't dispute the dramatic variability of vaccine coverage around the country as we approach the middle of January 2021, but insists that the total of 700 sites will soon rise to 1,000 and keep rising in the weeks ahead. But what they don't explain is why these sites weren't already established and ready to go as soon as the doses became available. This system was decided over the summer, yet that most basic infrastructure is not in place. In October, the 2012 Human Medicines Regulations were amended to allow retired health professionals to get back to work to help with vaccinations under the NHS Bring Back Staff Scheme. Many thousands applied to do their bit and were confronted with a demand for 21 separate documents and qualifications, including anti-terrorism diversity training. Important for full-time NHS staff, no doubt, but hardly a priority for potential recruits to the emergency vaccine army. 
On this, Boris Johnson promised action in an interview with the BBC's Andrew Marr on January the 3rd. Do you think it's issue. reasonable that they should be filling in forms about de-radicalisation measures, fire drills, etc. before they're allowed? I don't. I think it's absurd and I, and I know that the Health Secretary has taken steps okay. to get rid of that uh, okay. pointless bureaucracy. The question is again, why did it take so long for such obvious obstacles to be removed, more than a month after the Pfizer vaccine was approved? At times, it seemed like ministers and NHS officials don't actually want the help that is being offered. On November the 27th, pharmacies were sent a letter by NHS England, inviting them to participate in the national mobilisation of the vaccine, not least because so many of them, 11,400 to be precise, have first-hand experience in the administration of winter flu jabs. Yet, last week, the UK's biggest pharmacy chains, Lloyds and Boots, were expressing despair at ministers' failure to respond to their offer of help. In public, ministers say the strategy is being rolled out as quickly as possible. In private, they admit there's no point mobilising forces until they have the vaccine in vials, ready for them to use. As one senior government source puts it, people keep saying, bring in the army, bring in vets, and, and we will but there's no point in doing so until we have vaccines for them to put into people's arms. Which is, without doubt, the heart of the matter. In a letter published on New Year's Eve, Chris Whitty and the other UK chief medical officers put the matter as starkly as they could. Vaccine shortage, they wrote, is a reality that cannot be wished away. It felt like a sombre warning to the whole nation on the brink of 2021. As the global market for vaccines gets more fierce... As the demand grows for lockdown measures to be lifted, as the UK death toll climbs towards the once unimaginable total of 100,000, as all this happens, the clamour for jabs will increase. Will it be met by boxes of vaccine or gaps in supply and lengthening queues in the cold? This led the chief medical officers to support ministers' new interim tactic of extending the time between the two vaccine doses from two to three weeks to 12 weeks, an idea that had been first put forward by Tony Blair and was embraced quickly by ministers. The logic was straightforward. When vaccines are in short supply, why not extend a significant level of protection to twice as many vulnerable people, rather than full protection to a lesser number? The case, it was argued, was clear enough. If you could make both your parents reasonably secure from COVID, rather than give two doses to only one of them, wouldn't you pick the option that made them both safer? The decision was controversial, prompting none other than Anthony Fauci, the long-serving director of the US National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, to question its wisdom. We know from the clinical trial that the optimal time is to give it on one day and then for Moderna 28 days later and for Pfizer 21 days later. In researching this story, the most striking discovery I've made is that Johnson and his team see the single-dose tactic as an achievement rather than a last resort, as evidence of British enterprise and ingenuity in contrast to the conservatism of European medical practice. It's a brilliant example of British exceptionalism, says one cabinet source. If so, what kind of exceptionalism? Not the scientific genius of the Oxford labs, but the defiance of regulations and original guidance in order to get quick results. Ministers celebrate the ploy as buccaneering. Many scientists regard it as an undesirable risk. What we must certainly do in the weeks and months ahead is keep our eyes on the precise meaning of the vaccination statistics. The PM's statement on January the 4th was his most accomplished since the crisis began, delivered with poise and conviction. But it also included a sly but all-important change in the definition of a vaccinated person, 
I can share with you tonight the NHS's realistic expectations for the vaccination programme in the coming weeks. By the middle of February, if things go well and with a fair wind in our sails, we expect to have offered the first vaccine dose to everyone in the four top priority groups identified by the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. That's 14 million people before, say, February the 15th. The total who'd received their first dose by January the 5th was 1.3 million. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that a further million have been reached by today, January the 11th. That still leaves about 12 million to be vaccinated, or half vaccinated with a single dose, in five weeks. Or does it? Note that the Prime Minister conspicuously used the term offered, a weasel word that could cover anything from a GP asking a recipient sitting in his clinic whether he was ready for the jab, to an 85-year-old living alone in a tower block, receiving a text inviting her to an appointment, a text on a smartphone that she has trouble reading without assistance. Does the unread digital offer made to her count as a vaccination? And who will check? It would be churlish to deny the achievement that the development of these vaccines represents. This is not a South Sea bubble, more like a building that hasn't been completed on time and may not yet be fully fit for occupancy, but is being partially occupied anyway on the grounds that some shelter is better than none. Always the gambler, Boris Johnson has bet his entire pandemic strategy and perhaps his premiership on a single vaccine plan that, if it works, will be a triumph, but is still fantastically vulnerable to failure, disappointment and delay. This really is the biggest bet of his life, which is saying something. The trouble is that many other lives are involved this time too. The rewards of success will be great, but so too will be the punishment for failure. As one senior minister sums it up, if this works, we'll be heroes. But if it doesn't, we'll be the bunch of pricks destroyed by a bunch of pricks. This episode was brought to you by Tortoise Studios. It was produced by Gabriella Jones and original music was by Tom Kinsella. Thanks for listening. See you next week. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.